I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. For the past seven months, the world has watched a humanitarian crisis unfold across Ukraine. Many of our readers have reached out to us directly with questions on how the rules of war, international humanitarian law, or IHL, apply to this armed conflict. We found other areas of interest by scanning what information people have searched for on the internet. So today I'm sitting down with ICRC's Chief Legal Officer, Cordula Droga, who's answering some of these questions that we've received on the key rules of IHL governing the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cordula. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. So, as I said, what we've done today is essentially we've been scanning uh, Google search and some of the questions that we've received directly. So, everything we're talking about today are questions we've received directly from people who read our work on the internet, who follow the work of the ICRC, or who just have questions about international humanitarian law and have looked for these answers on Google. So first, let's just start with a framing question. Uh, Is the war in Ukraine an international armed conflict? And what does that mean? Yes, it is an international armed conflict. In international humanitarian law, so the law that regulates armed conflicts or law of war, an international armed conflict is an armed conflict or use of force between two or more states. And because we have two states involved in this armed conflict, Russia and Ukraine, under international humanitarian law, it is an international armed conflict. Thank you. Our next question against that backdrop Uh, One of our readers asked, quote, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine a violation of international humanitarian law, unquote? Okay, so let me perhaps answer this by first explaining in a nutshell what international humanitarian law, and I will often use the acronym IHL, is. IHL is the body of law that protects people, so both civilians as well as combatants, when conflict breaks out. So it consists of a number of treaties, such as the Geneva Conventions or additional protocols or weapons treaties that limit uh, what the warring parties can do and set rules on how they have to treat people who are in their hands. So it's a pragmatic body of law that applies once conflict breaks out and while wars should be outlawed altogether, of course, or not break out, What international humanitarian law does, it it provides a minimum of humanity when wars nonetheless break out. And therefore, IHL is actually not the body of law that regulates when going to war with another state is lawful or not. Mm. That question is actually regulated by the UN Charter, which prohibits the use of force between states and regulates certain exceptions to that prohibition. So the answer to the question of whether a country's decision to enter a conflict or attack another state is lawful or not is not to be found in IHL, actually. IHL is silent on this question. It's a question that's answered by the UN Charter. Okay, thank you for that. So it's not whether an armed conflict is just, it's the rules that apply once that conflict has started. That's exactly it. Okay. So next question is, within this body of law, of international humanitarian law, 
the Geneva Conventions are the main the main texts within IHL. Who do the Geneva Conventions protect? Yes, exactly. So the Geneva Conventions, if you will, they're the foundational text. They're the backbone of all of international humanitarian law. Um, and in a nutshell, what they do is they protect people who are in the power of the enemy. S more specifically, they protect the wounded and sick um, and the dead uh, on land and at sea. They also protect f prisoners of war and they protect civilians who are caught in the conflict, for instance, in occupied territories or civilians who are in detention. And so for all these categories of people, the Geneva Conventions requires the parties to treat them with dignity and humanity. And I think that's really what we need to emphasize most. Dignity, humanity, the protection of people from mental and physical Uh, or the, of people's mental and physical integrity is re really the basic tenet at the heart of the Geneva Conventions. And so then they regulate in a lot of detail, because as I said, they're a very pragmatic body of law, born really from the experience of humanitarians, military and civilians on the battlefield, um, about how people must be treated. So for instance, um, There are 143 rules that parties have to comply with when they uh, detain prisoners of war. Um, this includes the way they must be treated, they must be registered, the food and the logic, uh, lodging, uh, the health, uh, the health care that m they must be uh, receive, the contact with their families or their repatriation or release. So it's very comprehensive, actually. Um, and they also, um, perhaps one last thing, they give the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, a role as the guardian of, of these conventions, uh, in, in particular for the collection of information uh, pertaining to detainees and people in the hands of the enemy so that they don't get lost mm -hmm. um, and that their families know where they are at all times and can have contacts with them and gives the ICRC also a right to visit all places where people find themselves, civilians or prisoners of war. Thank you for that. And I think this next question from our reader, uh, you started actually to answer uh, in, this, in this previous answer. Uh, this question being, what are the basic rules of IHL, international humanitarian law, applicable to the armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Mm, okay, so, uh, yeah, we talked about, in a way, the first set of rules, which is the Geneva Conventions, which protect people who are in the hands of the enemy. There's another set of rules um, that we often call the rules on the conduct of hostilities, and that means the rules that regulate the actual fighting and military operations. And the basic tenets of all of these rules is that in armed conflict, the right of the parties to choose the means and methods of warfare is not unlimited. So there are limited limits to their choice of weapons and limits to the way they conduct their military operations. So this is, this is the set of rules on the conduct of hostilities. And there are what we call uh, three cardinal principles to uh, the rules on the conduct of hostilities. And these, and, and readers will have heard about these very uh, certainly, are the rules of distinction, um, and also the rules of proportionality and precaution. And the principle of distinction basically means that the parties have to at all times distinguish between civilians and civilian objects on the one hand 
and combatants and military objectives on the other hand. And it is prohibited to target civilians and civilian objects and it is also prohibited to carry out indiscriminate attacks. Uh, you know, as we see very often today in, in war in cities that we see around the world, but also, of course, in Ukraine, when you use explosive weapons with wide area effects, such as, for instance, large bombs, large missiles, or you use unguided artillery, which will saturate large areas, um, and you use these in cities, it poses serious questions as to the prohibition of indiscriminate attacks. Uh, secondly, the principle of proportionality says that it's prohibited to carry out attacks that are expected to cause um, civilian death or injury or um, destruction or damage to civilian buildings or other infrastructure that would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. So it's basically the rule that perhaps in common parlance people would call a rule that limits uh, what is often called collateral damage. Um, and then thirdly, the principle of precaution is basically what it says and it requires the parties to take all feasible precautions that they can take when they carry out their military operations to verify that the targets are actually military targets, to avoid and mis minimize incidental civilian harm, um, um, and, to, and to take all these precautions in order to protect civilians from uh, military operations and the effects of military operations, basically. Thank you for that. Our next question is coming from a reader who says, all I'm seeing is violations of international humanitarian law. Why is IHL important? IHL is important because basically, despite all the suffering that wars cause, even wars have limits. And IHL sets those limits. And it protects victims of armed conflict from death, from torture, from being separated with no news from their families, from finding themselves uh, under indiscriminate attack, and so on. So as I said before, it applies as a minimal threshold of humanity when war breaks out. Unfortunately, of course, the world has not yet found a way to entirely eliminate conflicts. Mm -hmm. And so we continue to desperately need this minimum threshold of legal protection. Mm -hmm. And all states in the world are parties to the Geneva Convention. And so the Geneva Conventions provide a very clear, non-disputable common denominator of behavior in war, and no country can object to them. Now, of course, um, as your reader suggests, there are a lot of violations that we see um, in the world of, of um, international humanitarian law, and so we need now for all parties to really abide by these legal obligations and also for the international community to take responsibility and make every effort to uphold them. Thank you, and that leads perfectly to our next question, which is... What happens if a country breaks the Geneva Conventions? Yeah, so what happens is more human suffering. I think that's what we need to state from the start. What needs to happen when there's an allegation that the Geneva Conventions have been broken is that the party in question has to investigate the alleged violation and put an end to it. And it also has to hold individuals uh, who commit violations to account so I think we have to be clear that the key to respect for international humanitarian law is at the national level. And there has to be political will, there has to be a legal framework, and there have to be systems in place to prevent and to put a stop to violations. And so there are many things that we can do to achieve this. 
Um, and it's, it's one of the critical ways in which the ICSC works to better achieve national implementation of IHL, to adopt domestic law, to adopt national structures such as IHL committees, uh, to adapt criminal le legislation, um, and then, of course, to have a dialogue with the parties in order to apply it. When a country nevertheless does not respect IHL, then also it's perhaps interesting to know that according to the Geneva Conventions, all states, parties to the Geneva Conventions, and as I just mentioned to you, all states are parties to the Geneva Convention, have an obligation not only to respect, but also to ensure respect for international humanitarian law. And what that means is that according to the Geneva Conventions, all states should then take measures to bring those parties who are not respecting international humanitarian law back to an attitude of respect. And I think what's interesting here is that, of course, um, states have allies, they have partners, they have uh, other states who support them financially, they have states that provide them with weapons and so on. And so these states are, of course, in a special position to induce better or to encourage uh, warring parties to better respect IHL. So lastly, perhaps on this, what I also want to say is that we must not get despondent about seeing the violations on IHL, or rather we should get despondent and we should turn our outrage into action mm -hmm. for better respect. But we should also not forget that there are many instances of respect for IHL that we don't see every day because they don't make the headlines. Mm -hmm. And so you. every time you have you know, a hospital that is actually not uh, being targeted. Every time you have um, visits to detainees by the ICRC, and we visit about a million detainee, uh, detainees per year, this is compliance with the Geneva Conventions. Thank you for that reminder. And it's, it's very true. A lot of the good news stories and the, the thousands of instances of respect of the rules of war do not make the news every day. Okay, so going back to the more nitty-gritty, uh, detailed aspects of international humanitarian law, and I'm assuming that this next question is uh, with regard to increasing concerns about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine and uh, potential attack or damage to that. Uh, the question is, is attacking a nuclear power plant against the Geneva Conventions? Um, so... Attacking a new nuclear power plant is not against the Geneva Convention, strictly speaking, because they don't regulate this type of activity. It's really the additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions. But uh, in a nutshell, nuclear power plants are civilian objects to start with. And as I said before, civilian objects are protected against attacks and they're also protected against indiscriminate attacks, as, as it were, or, or excessive collateral damage. But more importantly... They are also specifically protected. So there are specific provisions in, uh, additional, in the additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions um, because it's prohibited to attack them even when they have been turned into military objectives. So, for instance, by being misused uh, to hide combatants or to hide military equipment, if attacking them would cause what is called in, in additional protocol one, release of dangerous forces. And in the case of nuclear power plants, what that means is radiation, uh, you know, radioactive leaks um, that would cause severe or excessive losses among civilians. And so, of course, given the risk 
of radiation leaks. And the fact that we know today that radiation leaks are impossible, in fact, to control in time and space because they're actually subject also to meteorological conditions, it's really difficult to envisage in practice that an attack causing radioactive contamination that is unpredictable would ever comply with international humanitarian law. And there's also specific rules that, that say that in order to better protect nuclear power plants, parties to the conflict must endeavor to avoid, for instance, locating military objectives in their vicinity. So, of course, that the, so that the opposing party isn't, uh, 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 you know, um, tempted to attack those, uh, those objects in the vicinity. And interestingly, IHL also encourages party to, parties to conclude agreements amongst themselves to further protect nuclear power plants. And so, um, you know, I think also the, the work that is being done at the moment under the aegis also of the IAEA, etc., is really in line with this, uh, this encouragement to parties to conclude these agreements in order to, um, you know, to avoid absolutely uh, radio, uh, radioactive leaks from... from either direct attacks or, or incidental uh, damage to civilian power plants. And I will mention that there is a blog in your series uh, just written by my colleagues uh, that sets out in very much detail the protection of nuclear power plants. Yes, that is uh, the topic of the Humanitarian Law and Policy blog this week by two of your legal advisors. So yes, I think I'm going to reword that reader's question, actually, and recap your answer. It's not necessarily the Geneva Conventions per se, but does international humanitarian law protect nuclear power plants during armed conflict? The answer is yes, and strongly so. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, this next question from our reader, I think, is probably a reaction to this very confusing time that we live in of social media and misinformation and sometimes disinformation that circulates. And the question is, does the Red Cross support Russia? So the short answer is that the Red Cross supports populations affected by armed conflict, regardless of whose sides of the front line they find themselves. It does not support parties to conflicts. Um, so the International Committee of the Red Cross's mandate is to provide protection and relief to victims of armed conflict. And like the entire Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, and we have many national Red Cross uh, and Red Crescent societies present in Ukraine today and providing relief, works on the basis of the principles of humanity, impartiality, neutrality and independence. And what this means is that we seek to provide relief to those most in need on the principle of impartiality, on the basis of the principle of impartiality, and without taking sides in a conflict. And the sole purpose is to be where the needs are greatest in a conflict. So in places of detention where people are at particular risk, supporting hospitals, treating the wounded and sick in occupied territories when populations are particularly exposed. And so in order to be close to the populations who are suffering from conflict, in order to have this access, in order to get into the prisons, to get into occupied territory, the ICRC needs to talk to those who are in control of the prisons and in control of these territories. And therefore, it needs to talk to all sides. So it cannot support one side mm. to the detriment of another side because it needs to talk to all sides and have a dialogue with all sides. And the purpose is really to be where the needs are greatest and to have a dialogue with the parties about their respect for international humanitarian law. 
So in a nutshell, it's really, we're, we're not taking sides, we're taking action. Mm -hmm. That's what the ICRC yes. does. And that was the title of, again, one of our blog posts on the Humanitarian Law and Policy blog by Fiona Terry, which is part of this Back to Basics series that was yeah. created in reaction to this misinformation, really trying to lay out what the fundamental principles are and why they're so essential to, to our work. Yes, and to explain also that the principle of neutrality, which is often misunderstood, doesn't mean to say you're silent. Mm -hmm. It means that you are trying to talk to all sides in order to get access and to provide relief and protection to those who most need it. So as, as Fiona put it, you don't take sides, you take action. Um, and that, uh, that is neutrality, therefore, is a working tool for us. To, to carry out this action. Thank you for that clarification. And that brings us to our last question, which is, what is the ICRC doing to help in Ukraine? So there's, there's a range of activities. And as I said, we do uh, these activities in concert as well, of course, with the Ukrainian uh, Red Cross uh, and as well as um, a large number of uh, national uh, Red Cross and Red Crescent societies. And so, for instance, we have together with uh, the Red Cross movement provided medical support to over 700,000 people, medical equipment, drugs, treatment, trained medical staff, deployed medical teams specialized in war surgery. Uh, we have also, in partnership with the Ukrainian local authorities, provided access to clean and drinkable water for over 9 million people because, of course, a lot of the water infrastructure has been damaged and so we have helped the local authorities to, um, to repair it or maintain it. We've also delivered uh, basic assistance such as food and hygiene items to um, over 5 million people across Ukraine and also neighboring countries. Um, one of the things that was perhaps advertised uh, or more in the news what was the safe passage that we facilitated for 10,000 civilians caught uh, in the midst of hostilities in, in several cities around Ukraine. I think importantly, of course, as well, um, the ICRC and its uh, central tracing agency have received over 12,000 requests from people who are looking for family members, can be civilians, can be soldiers, and we've been able to provide information about their loved ones to some 4,000 people this far. And we are really trying to do our best to provide as much information as we can to those who are really suffering from not knowing where their loved ones are. We've also visited hundreds of prisoners of war. However, we know that there are thousands of prisoners of war, partly because the parties have acknowledged it. But despite our constant reminders, we haven't been able to visit all of them. And that is actually contrary to the obligations of the parties to the Geneva Conventions. So we will continue to do our utmost to get access to all places where prisoners of wars are, but also civilians. Um, and we can only, you know, recall that it's the obligation of the parties to give us access. And it brings us back to one of the very first questions you asked about what do the Geneva Conventions do? And they regulate this and, um, and put this obligation on the parties. Thank you. I think that's really encouraging, actually, to hear a recap of all the work that we and the broader movement have been able to accomplish. I know that that's really a drop in the ocean with how much more needs to be done in this context and in other contexts as well of, of armed conflict. But it's, uh, it's, it's all connected, everything that you've talked about today. And I think it's been really valuable 
to answer some of these readers' questions. Um, I wonder if we get a second round of questions, would you be able to come back and join us for a part two? Because this might actually spark some other ideas from our readers. They might come back with us with other questions. Would you be available? Yeah, if I can just uh, comment on what you say, it is mm -hmm. a drop in the ocean and I mm -hmm. don't want to give the impression that we are content with what we're doing. We're really trying to do much more because the needs are absolutely immense and we're also trying to um, get access to areas where we haven't had access yet or not enough access. Um, and as I said, we will not give up um, for the sake of families to uh, to visit the prisoners of war and also for the for the prisoners themselves and their well-being. So that uh, being said, of course, if there are uh, any questions on international humanitarian law, I'm more than happy to answer them and I hope that people who listen get a sense of how protective and full of humanity this body of law is. Thank you, Cordula. And you, you heard that right. If you have any other questions, uh, feel free to write me directly at erushing at icrc.org and we can uh, gather those together and invite Cordula back to answer them. But meantime, thank you so much for joining us today, Cordula, and uh, answering some of our readers' questions. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.